Testing one, two, three, testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon Sunday School broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode is going to be uh, lesson six of the Come Follow Me manual, where the course of study for 2024 is the Book of Mormon. And tonight's subject is going to be specifically about the Book of Mormon critical text project. Because the reading assignment, which is 2 Nephi 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, has a, an interesting correlation for me and an, and an interesting story in my, my history that I've never, ever told you about, to my recollection, even though I've been podcasting for over seven years. And this was somewhat of a significant event in my life as a Book of Mormon scholar. So let me see if I can get the... There we go. There it is. Lesson number six, Mormon Sunday School tagline, where you learn stuff you're never going to hear in regular Sunday school. As I said, it's 2 Nephi 1 through 2. It's lesson number six for February 5th through 11th of 2024 in the Come Follow Me manual. But once again, we're going to be focusing not just on one verse, which we did last week. Last week, we focused on one verse in the Book of Mormon, and that verse was the 600-year prophecy of Jesus. Today, we're going to focus even more narrowly, not just on a verse, not just on a sentence, but really on a word in the Book of Mormon, and that word makes all the difference. But to get to that story, I have to give you some background on the Book of Mormon Critical Text Project, what it is, what it's accomplished, and then how I became involved with it. So let's go over here to the next slide. The Book of Mormon Critical Text Project it commenced in 1998 and went on for about 25 years. I suppose some could say it's still going on, but I think the main part of it went on for 25 years. It was headed up by Royal Skousen, who is a professor at Brigham Young University. Now, what is a critical text? Critical texts have been done for other very, very famous and sometimes ancient books. For instance, in New Testament studies, the critical text refers to a Greek text of the New Testament that is based on a combination of the earliest and most accurate manuscripts available. The goal is to provide the most accurate, earliest text possible based on all available manuscripts. And that indeed was the goal that Royal Skousen was working toward in his critical text project for the Book of Mormon. He finally got there as well, but there was a great deal, a massive deal, a Herculean deal of work that he had to go through before he was even prepared to get to that point. Here's Royal Skousen, PhD, Professor of Linguistics and English at BYU. Now, the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon, of course, with the New Testament, you have all these different variants and all these different manuscripts from all sorts of different time periods that have been discovered over the centuries. And the idea there is to try and winnow through it, try and come up with what would represent as well as human ability and scholarship can tell us what was the original manuscript of the New Testament. Now, obviously, nobody says this is it, but this is as close as we can get, at least with our scholarship at the current time. Whereas the New Testament has a bunch of different manuscripts, hundreds of different manuscripts, the Book of Mormon has primarily two manuscripts, which uh, Royal Skousen was working with. And I want to talk to you about the original manuscript 
of the Book of Mormon and the printer's manuscript of the Book of Mormon. I was not aware that there were two manuscripts of the Book of Mormon until about 20 years ago when I became aware of the Critical Text Project. Now, the original manuscript is the one that Oliver Cowdery and other scribes wrote down as Joseph Smith dictated the Book of Mormon. Sometimes it's abbreviated as simply O for original. But there's a second manuscript of the Book of Mormon, and that is called the Printer's Manuscript. After the Book of Mormon had been dictated, Joseph Smith instructed Oliver Cowdery to copy the entire manuscript over again. And that took him a number of months. I think it was from around August of 1830 to November or December of 1830. They wanted to have the entire manuscript copied over specifically for purposes of the printing. That's why it's called the printer's manuscript. The purpose was to have an additional manuscript that could be taken to the printer without fear of losing the original. See, if it had been today, they would just run it down to the nearest Kinko's and had a copy made. But back then, they had to copy it over again. The entire Book of Mormon. And that task, as I said, fell to Oliver Cowdery. Because the purpose of this second manuscript was to be used by the printer, it is called the printer's manuscript, and it's sometimes abbreviated with the letter, capital letter P. So the printer's manuscript, we're in good luck here. The printer's manuscript exists in its entirety. It is extant today, and it is held by the Church of Christ Covenant. They came into possession of it. They hold it today. The original manuscript, however, not so good. Joseph Smith placed the original manuscript in the cornerstone of the Nauvoo House in 1841 for safekeeping, right? Yeah. Well, there's a, a picture of the Nauvoo House in the cornerstone of which Joseph Smith had placed the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. There's Joseph Smith, the one placing it there. The original manuscript stayed there for over 40 years until it was removed from the cornerstone of the Nauvoo House by Lewis Bitterman, a name that you may recall, second husband of Emma Smith. In 1882, he removed it from the cornerstone of the Nauvoo House. But I can only imagine the disappointment that was felt by all concerned. Oh, by the way, here's a picture of Lewis Bitterman. He's looking rather uh, jaunty, rather debonair in his top hat and beard. Yes, people must have been very disappointed to find out that the original manuscript, while it was sitting in the cornerstone of the Nauvoo House for over 40 years, got damaged by water. Only 28% of the original manuscript survived, and it wasn't in very good shape, as you might imagine. Here's a picture of some of the original manuscript, a fragment of the original manuscript. So the first volumes of the Critical Text Project, Royal Skousen gathered or gained access to all possible fragments of the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. He was able to subject them to black and white ultraviolet photography to help make the writing legible. And then he published the original text in book form together with pictures of the photographs of the fragments of the original text. That was the first volume in the Critical Text Project. And then the second volume was when Royal did the same thing with the printer's manuscript, publishing it in book form. 
The research that he did next went through all the changes in every copy of the Book of Mormon, or at least the major copies of the Book of Mormon. Here's how he described that. Um, the third volume will discuss the transmission of the text from the manuscripts through the major editions of the Book of Mormon. So that's what that does. And that's a multi-volume effort. And here is the history of the text of the Book of Mormon. There's a picture of the book itself. As I said, this research was published in multi-volumes, and it's called The History of the Text of the Book of Mormon. You can see this volume right here is part four, The Nature of the Original Language. After he was done with that, you can see one, two, three, four, five, six. Over here on the left in the green volumes, that's the history of the text of the Book of Mormon. It was six volumes long. And it went through sub su such subjects as volume one, grammatical varieties, volume two, grammatical variation. I'm sorry, the first one is variation. Volume three, the nature of the original language. Volume four is named the same thing. Volume five, the King James quotations in the Book of Mormon. And finally, volume six, spelling in the manuscripts and editions. So that itself was its own Herculean tax, task. Then he got to the next part of his project, which was to analyze the Book of Mormon, every verse in the Book of Mormon, in an attempt to find out as best he could what is the closest he can get to the original language of the Book of Mormon. And that ended up being another six volumes there on the right, the volumes that are reddish in color. And you can see each of those are called Analysis of Textual Variants of the Book of Mormon. There's volume one, and it shows that it goes from 1 Nephi 1 through 2 Nephi 22, I believe it is, and so on, covering all the books in the Book of Mormon, showing all the textual variants and trying to figure out what is the closest we can get to the original language. And there's another picture of that same six-volume masterwork. It's the entire Book of Mormon with every variant. So he'll go through every single passage in there, go through the different variations, and try and come up with what is the closest to the original. As I say, the attempt is to get to the earliest text of the Book of Mormon. For this, primarily, the original manuscript and the printer's manuscript were used. I mean, we don't really care what the 1980 version of the Book of Mormon or the 1920 version of the Book of Mormon says, right? It might be 1981. Because they're so far removed, any variations in those books doesn't really have a lot to do with trying to figure out what the original original was. So that's why it's primarily the original manuscript and the printer's manuscript were used. And it was published in this book, The Book of Mormon, The Earliest Text. So that's when he took all those last six volumes, took all of his findings, and then published simply the text of the Book of Mormon in what he and his research was able to determine was as close as they could get to the earliest possible text of the Book of Mormon, hence the title, The Earliest Text, edited by Royal Skousen. And here's the inner page, The Book of Mormon, The Earliest Text, edited by Royal Skousen. You'll note that it was published by Yale University Press in New Haven in London. It wasn't published by Deseret. And it was published in 2009.
All right. So remember, this started in 1998. Royal Skousen's work on this Book of Mormon critical text project. And this is 21 years later, where finally he gets to what was the ultimate task. He's done all these 12 volumes plus the original two volumes for a total of 14 volumes before he could get to this point to be able to publish this book called The Earliest Text. And here on the inner uh, cover of that book, there's a blurb which I'm going to read because it also helps to describe what's going on with this book. First published in 1830, the Book of Mormon is the authoritative scripture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Over the past 21 years, editor Royal Skousen has poured over Joseph Smith's original manuscripts, and that's poured, P-O-R-E-D, and identified more than 2,000 textual errors in the 1830 edition. Although most of these discrepancies stem from inadvertent errors in copying and typesetting the text, the Yale edition, i.e. this book, the Yale edition contains about 600 corrections that have never appeared in any standard edition of the Book of Mormon. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? And about 250 of them affect the text's meaning. So 350 changes don't affect the text's meaning, but 250 do in some way or other. Citing the earliest sources available, Skousen corrects the text in a work of remarkable dedication that will be a landmark in American religious scholarship. All right, now we're going to zero in on one verse and one word in that one verse. If you'll give me just a second. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that verse is 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11. Here is my Book of Mormon. It's a little bit marked up over the years. But we can see that this is page 57, chapter 2 of 2 Nephi. And down here at the bottom right of the page is verse 11. Here's a close-up. This is a famous verse. It actually gets quoted somewhat often in Mormonism. For it must, it must needs be, this is Lehi speaking to his son, Jacob. For it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, that's Jacob, Righteousness could not be brought to pass. Neither wickedness, neither holiness, nor misery, neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things must needs be a compound in one. And I've highlighted that particular area that has to do with the phrase I'm interested in, which is neither holiness nor misery. Okay? You can see that there, neither holiness nor misery, neither good nor bad. And here's the book, the interior of that book. I have to give a shout out to Bill Reel for providing this to me because I didn't have this book, the earliest text of the Book of Mormon. And Bill Reel did, and he sent me some, uh, some screen grabs of particular pages, this particular page as well. You can see this is in 2 Nephi chapter 2. The next slide is a close-up of 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11 from the critical text, from the earliest text of the Book of Mormon, where it says, it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass. See, it's the same verse. But going on, neither wickedness, neither happiness nor misery. Wait a second, neither happiness nor misery. Is that the same as it was in the Book of Mormon as we have it today? Let's do a comparison. No, it's not. Here's the current Book of Mormon, 
which says, neither holiness nor misery. And over here in the critical text, the earliest text of the Book of Mormon, Royal Skousen has it as, not neither holiness nor misery, but neither happiness nor misery. So that's one of those 600 changes that he was talking about that are for the first time revealed in his earliest text project. The change in the text. In 2 Nephi 2.11, the word holiness in the current Book of Mormon was changed to happiness in the critical text, in his earliest text of the Book of Mormon. What caused this change? Why did the word holiness become happiness in the earliest text of the Book of Mormon? The answer is, ta-da, yours truly. Yes, I am responsible for the change of that word. Here's the backstory, okay? Royal Skousen had been working on this project for over a decade. I mean, there's a huge amount of work just getting access to all the different manuscripts that he needs. The original manuscript isn't in one location. Uh, major parts of it are held by the church, but there are other people, private individuals, who hold uh, different fragments of it. And Royal Skousen was able to contact them all, able to view or gain access to all the different fragments from the original text of the Book of Mormon. And then he also was able to use that that photography, that black and white kind of photography, ultraviolet, in order to enhance the images so we could actually read things that were on the original manuscript that were not legible with the naked eye. That was huge enabled in, uh, in letting us figure out what was actually written there. So after he'd done all that, what Royal Skousen did was he didn't just leave it up to himself to figure out all the different changes or emendations, that's the technical word that he called it, and what scholars call it, emendations to the text. And in 2004, he sent out a public cry, by which I mean emails to everybody who he had access to, calling for proposed emendations in the Book of Mormon. In other words, are there, are there places in the Book of Mormon that you think should be changed back to the way it was originally, and what's your evidence for that. And I somehow managed to get put on an email list with Royal Skousen. As I said, he was looking for any proposed emendations to the Book of Mormon, i.e. places in the text where the original manuscript had been changed, usually when it was copied to the printer's manuscript, because that's where most of these errors crept in. You can imagine the task of copying the Book of Mormon even as it is today, much less if it were handwritten, and just having to do that with a quill pen. You don't even have a ballpoint. You don't have a computer. You are going to make mistakes. Oliver's going to make mistakes. He's only human, and indeed, he did make mistakes, and I think that Royal Skousen had calculated the number of mistakes to roughly averaging around three per page, although the vast majority of them, they don't make a difference in the meaning of the text, but some do, and this one does. Royal Skousen would review the proposed emendations. If he thought they were strong enough, he would propose a change to the text. So he's got hundreds and uh, thousands even of proposed emendations that people are sending to him. He's got grad students who are pouring over the original manuscript, or at least the photographs of the original manuscript, trying to find places where the original manuscript differs from the printer's manuscript. So places where Oliver Cowdery copied it over and made a mistake. That is what mainly constitutes, if that was strong enough, 
then Royal Skousen would consider that emendation as something that should be applied to the text. In other words, that, that word should be changed. And Royal Skousen had to have very good evidence before he was going to propose that the text of the Book of Mormon, a sacred scriptural text to millions of people and to himself, should be changed. As I say, they had to be very strong, these proposals, the evidence for them, before he would make such a recommendation. The vast majority of the emendations he found strong were based on the original manuscript itself, i.e. you could actually look and see the original manuscript was different than the printer's manuscript or the current text. But such emendations were limited by their very nature to the 28% of the original manuscript that survived. If you're looking at the original manuscript, which is the place to go to to see what it said originally, that is circumscribed by the fact that only about a quarter of the original manuscript survives. So only 28% of the Book of Mormon is able to be viewed through this process of looking at the original manuscript. Now, one emendation I proposed, yes, I responded to this email. One emendation I proposed was in 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11. You can see where this is going now, can't you? Where a series of opposites are listed. And this is the entire verse. It cuts off in the photograph of the page because that's the pagination of our current Book of Mormon. But this is how the whole thing reads. For it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, my firstborn in the wilderness, righteousness could not be brought to pass. Neither wickedness, neither holiness nor misery. Remember, that's where we're keeping our focus. <coughs> Apologies. Neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things must needs be a compound in one. Wherefore, if it should be one body, it must needs remain as dead, having no life, neither death, nor corruption, nor incorruption, happiness, nor misery, neither sense, nor insensibility. You can see all the pairs of opposites in this one verse, because it's talking about opposition in all things. But I will tell you that I had long thought prior to 2004 that it was odd that in this verse, in a list of opposite pairing words, one pair should stand out as not being opposites at all. And that pair is holiness nor misery. Even later in the same verse, it pairs it properly with its opposite of happiness nor misery. And you can see, here's neither holiness nor misery in the third line down in this verse. And then on the almost last line, it says happiness nor misery. See, even in the same verse, it says happiness nor misery after saying holiness nor misery. So I emailed in to Royal Scouts in a proposed emendation to this verse that holiness nor misery should be changed to happiness nor misery. So the problem, though, is that the original manuscript doesn't exist for 2 Nephi chapter 2. It is in the 75% almost. That doesn't, 72% technically. It's gone. It was destroyed by the water. It does not exist any, anymore. So it's a proposed emendation that cannot be verified or corroborated or disproven by looking at the original manuscript to see what the original manuscript said, which puts it in a strange kind of position. Therefore, it is highly unlikely this would be accepted as an emendation to the text. Remember, 
if you don't have the original manuscript to go off, then it's kind of speculative that you are proposing what the original manuscript that doesn't exist actually said. But Royal Skousen did some additional research and he found the results persuasive. And he published, um, this is a soft cover book. It's called Uncovering the Original Text of the Book of Mormon. And it was sort of a book that was published midway through the project. This was published in 2002. Okay. 2002. Well, I must have sent that email to him prior to 2002 then. So here's the book. I've got it right here. It's Uncovering the Original Text of the Book of Mormon History and Findings of the Critical Text Project. This is something that is done after a great deal of work has been done, but also outlining the work that needs to be done. And as of this point, those first six volumes, the green ones, had not been done. The second set of six volumes, the red ones, hadn't been done. And neither had the earliest text. So this is to try and show people what it is that's going on, what's been accomplished, and uh, bring them up to speed and hopefully gain their interest in the project. So here we have Royal Skousen in this book that I told you about and just showed you. It looks like it's page 16, and they get down to, see that number four there on the left that's circled in red? That's my circle. He's giving different examples to the audience in this brief book about changes and emendations that he has thought were appropriate to the Book of Mormon text and why. Now, this doesn't cover all of them, but it does cover one in particular. And here's a close-up of that number four. Here's what it says. The original text is not fully recoverable by human effort. Textual errors are gener generally not found. That's cut off, excuse me. But it says textual errors are generally not found except by discovering the correct reading in the manuscripts. Unfortunately, most of the original manuscript is not extant. Conjecture, based on internal analysis of the Book of Mormon text, has largely been unsuccessful in recovering the correct reading. Still, some conjectures are probably correct, such as neither happiness nor misery. In 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11, you can imagine how excited I was to read this. Rather than the current reading, neither holiness nor misery. And there, he replicates the verse as it is currently with neither holiness nor misery. He then looks at this expression elsewhere in the Book of Mormon. Elsewhere, the text always contrasts misery with happiness, not holiness. So we've got a number, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight examples of that. Happiness being contrasted with misery, but not holiness being contrasted with misery. So every single other time in the Book of Mormon where this occurs, it's always happiness being contrasted with misery. And he quotes from 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11. That was later on in the same verse that I just showed you where it pairs happiness nor misery. Then 2 Nephi 2, 13, it does it again in the same chapter, just two verses on. Alma 3, 26, it does it. Alma 40, verse 15. Alma 40, verse 15. So that occurs twice as well in that verse. Then chapter 40, verse 17 of Alma. Then Alma 40, verse 21. Wow, four different pairings of happiness and misery in Alma chapter 40 alone. And then Alma chapter 41 and verse 4, there's another instance of it there. Okay, so now I want to show you, excuse me, I have to um, 
There we go. So at the bottom it says, we do not have the original manuscript in 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11. Orthographically, holiness and happiness are similar. In other words, it, writing it out in cursive, they look similar. Probably, he writes, probably Oliver Cowdery, Cowdery mistakenly read happiness as holiness. So he's making that conjecture based upon an original manuscript that we don't have. But the evidence for it is so overwhelming that he is going to accept this as an emendation that should be made to the text of the Book of Mormon. And then it says in parentheses, parentheses, <laughs> this conjecture was first suggested by, and then the name is redacted, but I'll just say Radio Free Mormon. This conjecture was first suggested by Radio Free Mormon. Yes, the lazy learner. And here it is. RFM changes the text of the Book of Mormon. There on the left is once again, the verse as it appears in our current edition of the Book of Mormon, neither holiness nor misery. And then to the right is that same picture of 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11 in the earliest text of the Book of Mormon volume, neither happiness nor misery. So that one word happiness there is the word that was changed because of my proposed emendation. I mean, somebody else might have come up with it later on if I hadn't. I don't know that, but apparently I was the first person to suggest it, and that's why Royal Skousen said that I was. So, in conclusion, this was a massive project by Royal Skousen that took decades to complete. Lots of time, energy, and money went into this project. It was funded by the church or people who were close to the church, or faithful, obviously. When the LDS Church publishes a new edition of the Book of Mormon, which it does every few decades, and eventually they will, we're still using the 1981 edition, I believe, but when the LDS Church does publish a new edition of the Book of Mormon, it will likely incorporate some or all of the emendations accepted by Royal Skousen in his earliest text of the Book of Mormon. One of those changes would be 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 11 which means that Radio Free Mormon will be responsible. I'm going to change that to may be responsible. May be responsible for changing the text of the keystone of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that is the end of that story. It's a strange story. It's an amazing story. It is also a true story. So there you go. That's the end of the show. Let me ask you to hit like please hit subscribe. I want to thank all the donors who have donated to this channel. And if you have not donated yet, please go to radiofreemormon.org or you can go to the Sunday School website, the Mormon Sunday School website. Please make a donation. $5 a month is all I ask. Please make it a recurring donation if you can. If not, a one-time donation is okay too. But $5 a month is all I ask. If you can do $10, $20 a month, so much the better. But many hands make light work. And as Elder Uchtdorf, formerly President Uchtdorf, liked to tell us, be sure and lift where you stand. So once again, that's the end of Radio Free Mormon Sunday School. And I've got to find over here where my outro music is. There it is. And I will see you next week for 
Radio Free Mormon Sunday School. This is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.